What I've been saying in this series, I think this is the most important message of the series, is this side of heaven, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will have a struggle with sin. It's not, you're never going to get to a point, this side of heaven, where you will not struggle with sin. A sign of maturity is is that you understand that you have this duality within you. You have this capacity to desire and want to do good. But you also, at the same time, have this capacity to do evil and to sin. And it's a fairly big, strong pull. And maturity isn't that you just downplay it or you try to make excuses for it or you say, well, I'm better than most. Maturity is saying you look at it with both eyes and you acknowledge it and you say, I can't handle this. I need help. That's what maturity is. So this double nature can only be conquered by enlisting the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to talk about this weekend. Because in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this power of the Holy Spirit that every Christian has. And and if we take advantage of it, it will make a huge difference in our lives. So here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Now it's a rather lengthy passage of Scripture, but I hope you'll stick with me. Because after all, if we believe this is God's Word, we are given a promise that when we read it and we, we understand it and we take it into our lives, we will be blessed. So this would be a great time to be blessed. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit Think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature uh, control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law and never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. Even so, though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you no longer uh, have no longer no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you 
live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? And how can we have victory over the power of sin in our lives? Three things that I want to draw from this passage. The first one is this. We need to embrace our new freedom. He says this, and if if you are memorizing Scriptures, verses 1 and 2 of Romans 8 is a great passage of Scripture to memorize. And it has incredible implications. He says, so therefore there, there is no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin and death. There's no condemnation from sin. Now, what does that mean? It means that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, that we who are in Christ are no longer under condemnation. There's no debt because we belong to him. He paid the price. And this is critical because this means that no matter what you're doing, whatever you're doing wrong, nothing you can do will keep you from God. Condemnation for Christians is no more. You are no longer going to be condemned. Even though we're capable of incredible evil, we will never be condemned. Why? Because he was condemned for us. He took our sin. He, we, we use a theological phrase. We call it the substitutionary atonement. And that means that Jesus died. He took our sins. He took our place. He took our condemnation for us. And it's very important that we understand that principle. Paul is giving us, though, a very true view of the Christian. He's saying the Christian is at the same moment fallen, evil, and sinful. But at the other side is forgiven, under no condemnation, and dearly loved. And that's the balanced view of the Christian life. The Christian life isn't that we come to Christ and we're all now good people. It says that we have a capacity for sin and evil, but we're still loved. And that's the balance we have to carry in this life. Because Jesus was condemned for us on the cross. And I used the phrase over and over, Tim Keller, I first heard from Tim Keller, and he said, he lived, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. And when we understand that, we understand it was our sin that put him on the cross. But he loved us enough that he would come and give his life for us. And so we see the balance there. And what the Holy Spirit does, and it's very important, this is the component that I don't think we all often get. The Holy Spirit brings this truth of the gospel, not just to our minds, but to our hearts. And, and until the gospel soaks into our hearts, we will not understand the implications of what, what I'm talking about right now. We call this the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and it brings it to our hearts so we know it. We understand it. It makes a difference in our lives. It's one thing to know cerebrally that God God sent his son and that Jesus died and and to understand the gospel. It's another thing to know it deep down into our heart. And that's what we want to talk about. So instead of condemnation, we receive freedom and acceptance. Um, You know, sometimes we often think of ourselves, sometimes as Christians, as better than other people. And we shouldn't really do that. I mean, the, really, the only difference between us and somebody who is m- maybe you or me or a murderer or, a, 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 you know, a, 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 um, an adulterer or whatever else, 
whatever else. We can look at other people and say, well, look at them. They do this and look at them. They do this. And we often look at that and say, look at I'm much better than they are. I'm, I'm living a much better life. But you know what? It may be that the only thing that separates you from them and their behavior is that the grace of God has prevented a seed in your life to be watered. It may be that that seed, that evil seed was watered in that person's life and God, by his grace, didn't allow that seed to be watered in your life. And it may be just the grace of God that kept you from that. So uh, I love the phrase, and you've probably have heard it. You should look at a person, and when you see a person that's failing or somebody is not, it's not going well in their life, and before you step up and want to judge them, you ought to think this phrase, Except for the grace of God, there goes me. Except for the grace of God, there goes me. So I want you to see that balanced view of yourselves, that you're capable of terrible things, and so am I. But we're incredibly loved by God. And that I'm a sinner, but I'm a son. I'm a deceiver, but I'm a daughter. And when we have this healthy view of ourselves, that we're sinners, but we're loved, They're guilty, but no longer under condemnation. It gives us a freedom, a new freedom. So that's the first thing. Between points, I'm going to take a drink because you can see I'm losing. The second point is this. We need to redirect our minds. He says this. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. What does it mean to put your mind to it? You've maybe used that phrase with your children when they're working on their homework and they're not getting it. You say, put your mind to it. You know, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean pay attention, uh, work hard at it, focus intently on it, be preoccupied by it. Let it grab your attention. Let your imagination uh, want be totally captured by it. And what we're, we're, we're saying this morning is this. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel truth to your heart, to bring to your mind and your heart, to your life, what Jesus has done for you. This is the only way that can break, this is the only thing that can break the pattern of sin in our lives and really break our hearts, warm our hearts. Um, You know, in the battle against sin, what we tend to do is we tend to try to do willpower. Well, I just need to try harder. I just need to work harder. I just need to um, do these things and, and I'll get it. But, you know, the problem with willpower, it doesn't control our inner problem. And our inner problem is that we're broken people. We're self-centered. In the end, a lot of our sins and a lot of our problems comes because we're, we're selfish and we're sinful. And we look out for ourselves. That's why Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's not saying there in that, you know what? You don't really love your neighbor very well. Love your... You don't really love yourself very well, but love your neighbor. He's saying, you know, you already look out for yourself. Now put a little bit of that effort towards your neighbor. That's essentially what he's saying. Because we're generally fairly selfish people. And that can look a lot of different ways. My point is this. Just trying to work harder at it or trying to manufacture from the outside won't fix it. Paul talks about the flesh. And when he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the physical body. He's talking about that, that, that part of us that, is, that, is, that is, takes us away from God, that nature that pulls us from God. And the flesh is, is really our way to try to justify ourselves. Every one of us, and this is where we're really going to start to get to the heart of what our problem is with sin in our lives. 
Every one of us wants to justify our lives. What do I mean by that? We want our lives to count. We want our lives to have meaning. We want people to affirm us. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But we take it to a point where we say, I need this to feel as though I'm significant or safe, secure, or, or satisfied with my life. Left to ourselves, though, we will live to ourselves. And it leads to a self-centered life. Many of you are living a moral life. But you're living a moral life because, and I can't speak to your heart because I don't know. I'm just making a general statement. But many of us, and I found this in my life, live a moral life not because it's an inward thing that's coming from within us, a desire from within us. It's coming because we're duty-bound, because we have things outside of us that are keeping, like, for instance, why do you live morally? Uh, you may live morally because you say, well, if I don't, God will get me. Well, I don't know if that's the best motivation in the world. Or you say, well, it's against my Christian principles. I have Christian principles. I don't know why I have them. I was raised with these Christian principles. So that just violates it. It doesn't feel right if I violate those. Again, there's nothing wrong with having Christian principles. But is that really the reason? That's what drives you? Or you say, well, it'll hurt the people around me. And that's a little better because you're thinking, well, if I do this, I will hurt people. And I don't want to hurt people. Or I will it will embarrass me and those I care for. It will hurt my self-esteem. Or I'll get caught. I would never do this because what if I got caught? Now, if I didn't get caught, now we could talk maybe. But I might get caught. Or if I do this, I'll hate myself in the morning so I could never do this. You see, those are all external reasons. Paul is telling us, though, that real change can only come when we change our minds. <clears throat> if we set our minds on the things of the flesh, we will use these things to keep us in line. But when we set our things in the mind of the Spirit, it's different. Now, here's really, to me, the key part of the message. What Paul is saying is, there is something in our lives, in every one of our lives, Every one of us has this. There is something within our lives that captivates us. It captivates our mind. It captures our imagination. It calls out to our hearts and our souls and our being. It gives us our sense of value and worth, satisfaction, justification. It justifies our existence. And if it isn't God, then we will always be empty. And we'll never, ever be able to control this capacity for evil and sin within us. We will always be looking out for whatever that is. Now, what is it that drives you? It, it could be a good thing. Let's, let's be very clear. We're not talking about necessarily bad things. Being, you know, being a parent, being a good mom and dad, it's an honorable, noble, good thing. But if you want to be a good mom or dad, just so your kids will grow up one day and say, Mom, Dad, you're the best parents on this planet. I'm so blessed to be placed in your family. Number one, you've got to drink, you drink some coffee and wake up because that's never going to happen. But I mean, they're more likely to say when they're little and growing up and they're mad at you, you're poopy. You go, oh, my, my little angel just said something very terrible. How could they say that? And so what I'm saying is being a, wanting to be a good parent, wanting to do a good job is, is honorable and you should. 
But if that's it in your life, in other words, if I can prove that I'm a good parent, then my life will have meaning. If I can prove that my kids will grow up and love me and and give me affirmation, then I'll know my life is significant and I'm significant and I'm important. And if, if, if you take a good thing and you make it the thing, an ultimate thing, it becomes a sinful thing. Work is a good thing, a really good thing. It's an important thing. We ought to work and we ought to work hard. Hopefully you're working in an area where you're feeling like you're using your gifts. But work can become a good thing, work can become an excessive thing. You say, well, I want to be the best I possibly can. Why? So people will look up to me. So people will affirm me because I don't have a lot of people affirming me. They'll have to say it because I look at the house they live in, look at the car I drive, look at the life I'm living. I am a significant person and you'll have to say that about me. Well, now work is, which is a good thing, has become an ultimate thing. And an ultimate thing has taken the place of God and it's become a sinful thing. What is it in your life that drives you? It can't be a very good thing. Remember the story of Chariots of Fire? It was a story of Eric Little, who was a runner. And um, in the story, his, his sister, when she watched the movie Chariots of Fire, she was a little disappointed because there was one part of it that it didn't really bring out clearly. When Eric ran, and he ran the hundred. 100 meter, 100 yards, I don't know, they've changed it over the years. I don't know if it was 100 yards back then. But he ran a 100-yard dash, and it was very fast, one of the fastest in the world. And when he ran, he always ran. If you ever watch sprinters, they're like forward, and they're like, you know, their head is down like that. He would always run with his head up, his eyes to the sky, and his mouth open. Now, the first coach that ever would watch him would say, what are you doing? You don't run that way. But he, what his sister said, it's, what people don't understand was when he ran, he always ran with his eyes towards heaven and his mouth open. Because as he was running, he was praising God. And, and this is a quote. This is what Eric said. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, what Eric understood was God did, I don't have to justify myself by my running. I'm already justified. But when I run, I just praise God for what he's doing in my life. Now, one of his greatest competitors was Harold Abraham. And he ran for a very different reason. In fact, his quote was this. I will raise my eyes and I will look down the corridor, down the track, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Eric said, I don't run to justify my existence. I run because God made me fast. And when I run, I just feel close to God. Abraham basically said, I run because if I win, it will justify my existence. It will prove that I'm somebody. Eric said, I already am somebody because the creator of the universe, the one who made me in his image, says I'm something. And I'm valuable and I'm significant. Abraham's basically said, I have to do this. And, and that's a huge, huge difference. So let me ask you this. Why are you running? What are you running for? You see, if, if something other than Jesus has taken that centerpiece of your life, 
Not only will you not find fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in life, but you will struggle with sin. You may be able to control it a little bit, but you'll realize that you have really no control over it. See, you, you can either allow God to speak into your life and determine who you are or allow others to do it. So what is that one thing that's below the surface that you say, this is what drives me? And when that thing is taken away, you lose it. Here's the third thing we want to look at. We need to mortify our sinful deeds. He says this, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will lie. You will, uh, you will die. You will live. Okay. So what does this mean, put to death? In the King James, it's, it's, uh, it's translated, uh, the trans, it's an older translation of the Bible, the King James Bible. It, it's translated mortify. And we don't use that phrase any for, you know, word anymore. And mortify, you know, maybe you've heard people, I was mortified by it. What, what was, were you laying bricks? What was going on there? I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, mortification, though, means murdering the power of something or destroying or, or, or killing something. And, and basically what Paul says here is we need to kill, we need to murder the power of sin. Well, how do we do that? And that's essentially what Paul's been saying. You can't do this on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to murder sin in your life, the power of attra- and attraction of sin in your life. Only the Holy Spirit can help you. You see, mortification goes beneath the surface behavior of our lives. It looks at the motives of the heart. You can see, frankly, here's the problem. If we just stay at the surface level, every one of us looks like a pretty good person. But if we know why we do what we do, you go, oh, I don't want you to know why I'm doing this because the motives aren't really good for that. Well, that's what mortification does. It goes to the motives of the heart. Sin can only be cut at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the power of the gospel the unimaginable love of Christ for us. The way, and what that does is it, it, that exposure stimulates a wave of gratitude and a feeling of indebtedness. Mortification gets to the heart of our relationship with Jesus. It can only begin, as, as it begin to reveal the basic relationship with him. What I'm saying is this. What is the basis of your relationship with Jesus? How is it right now? Do you have an attitude, and I've met people like this, and maybe you're one of them, I don't know, but you feel like God has let you down, God owes you. You know, you've done so much for God, and he really hasn't come through for you. And you just feel like, you know what, after all I do, I'm I'm not getting a fair shake, and God isn't really dealing with me. He's cheating me. You know, God is cheating me. You could come at life that way. Or those who have found refreshing in the brook of his grace and mercy, they become more and more grateful more and more overwhelmed with gratitude and a deep feeling of debt towards God. Only the Spirit can allow the gospel to come to your heart. Now, many people think, well, the gospel, that's something that I I learn about, and I trust Jesus, and I step across the line of faith, and I'm done with the gospel, and I move on to more important things. I just want to tell you, if you understand the gospel the way, you don't even begin to understand the gospel. In fact, you've thrown away probably the most important tool that God has given you in changing you as a person. The gospel goes much further than that. 
uh, only as we allow the Spirit to speak deeply into our souls, as we see the wealth of his grace, forgiveness, and acceptance, will we find the freedom from sin that we so desperately want. How does the Spirit do that? What the Spirit does is the Spirit takes the truth of the gospel and it takes it to our hard hearts and it breaks them up. It takes it to our cold hearts and it warms our hearts. When you begin to allow the Spirit of God, you say, Spirit, melt my heart. Help me to understand the mercy and the grace that I received at Calvary from Jesus Christ. Help me to see that he who knew no sin became sin for me. Help me to see that that they turned away from him, that they mocked him, that they spit upon him, that they crucified, that they executed him. Why? Because it was my sin. Break my heart with that truth. Bring that heart so powerfully into my heart that it just breaks me. See, that's the only way we can do it. I want to give you just a my own personal experience. There have been times in my life when the Spirit of God so overwhelms me with his grace and acceptance and mercy that I'm absolutely destroyed by his love. I'm absolutely overwhelmed. I'm overcome with an incredible sense of appreciation and debt. I'm overwhelmed by his love. My cold heart begins to melt. My hard heart begins to break up. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can do that in my life. It's not going to come just by cerebrally reading God's word. You have to allow the Spirit of God to take it. Only the Spirit will break your heart like that. I think that's essentially what Paul's saying in Ephesians. Let me read you a couple of verses here. Here's what Paul says. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with the inner strength through his spirit. Well, that makes sense, right? What Paul is praying is that the spirit of God that God sent into you. Now, let me just stop for a moment. We believe here at Hope Church, and I think the Bible backs this up, that when we come to Christ Jesus, we receive his spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in us. And it's very clear as you read through Romans that Paul says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Jesus. You have never come across that line. But once you come across that line, you receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit isn't something you receive later on. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment you trust Jesus Christ. Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have life. You've not been born again. But he says this. He says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. See, the problem we're talking about here is we have this root of sin within our lives and we try to control it or we try to master it or we try to manage it on our own and we can't. We need the spirit of God to bring the gospel truth to our hearts to cut at the roots of this sinful and to replace it with an overwhelming appreciation and love for God. And he says this, and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep that his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though 
it is too great to fully understand. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that as you allow the Spirit of God to bring the love of God into your heart and you reflect on what Jesus has done for you and it begins to melt your heart and it begins to break your heart, not only will it start cutting at the root of sin in your life, but it will give you a new love. It will give you a new passion. It will give you a new direction. And it will change you from the inside out. The only way that you will overcome sin in your life is to find a new love, a new it. And, and, and that's why you have, Paul says you need to change your mind. You need to stop focusing on whatever it is that you think is going to make you or justify you and say, God, you already said I am valuable. I am, I am significant. I am secure in you. I am already valuable because you say I am and, and you set your son. And it breaks my heart that it was my sin that put him there. If I ever question that I am loved, I just look to you and I look to the cross and I know immediately I'm loved. I'm secure and I'm significant. And that should break our hearts. And if it breaks our hearts, then we look at sin in a different way. And, and maybe this is how we look at it. This is written by a Puritan preacher, John Owen. He wrote this. It's in older English, and it might be hard, to, it might be difficult for you to, to understand it. But I think you'll get an idea of what it means to meditate, and what it means to think about, excuse me, what it means to think about this whole idea of the uh, allowing the Spirit of God to bring the truth of the love of the gospel to your heart. He says this, What have I done? What love, mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled upon? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, to the Spirit for his grace? Have I defiled the heart of Christ that Christ so washed to wash? What can I say, dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to dis disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ? And so you begin to see the heart. What I'm saying to you is, if you are not having victory over this sinful state, capacity within you, it may be tied to, you're not, you're not availing yourself to what the gospel calls, or what the Bible calls the gospel, the power of the gospel. Paul, Paul says, you need to begin to comprehend how wide and long and deep the love of God is. And the only way you'll be able to do that is as you allow the Spirit of God to bring it to your heart. And you meditate upon it. And when he breaks your heart, he's striking blows at that sinful side of you. And you will start to have victory. You will look at sin and you won't say, I don't want to do it because I might get caught. You'll say, I don't want to do it because look at what he's done for me. How could I betray him? How could I act in such a way? After all he's done for me, after him giving his life for me, after him hanging on the cross for me, after him leaving his throne for me, after him shedding his blood for me, 
after him being spit upon for me. You get the idea. It changes everything. And only that will break your heart. Only that will warm a cold heart. But it doesn't happen unless you know God and unless you have the Spirit of God within you. My prayer is that you will find the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. By the way, the power of the Spirit is the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave. That power is within us and that power we need to draw upon. You can't handle this on your own. You need his help. May God help us to call upon him and ask for the help of the Spirit to bring the power, the truth of the gospel to our cold hearts. Stand. Help us, Father, because this is an endeavor that we can't do on our own. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand just how deep and wide and amazing your love is. It's something that every Christian should know more and more of. And, Father, may the Spirit of God bring the gospel to our hearts in new and fresh ways that break us, that warm us, that change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.